information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. You know, you asked specifically about screening. That's that's correct. Because of the fact that we are diagnosing these cancers in younger folks, the American Cancer Society recently lowered the recommended age at which we should be starting screening to, to 45 from 50. It was 50 prior to that. So what that means is anyone, even without any kind of family history of colon or rectal cancer and without any symptoms, should have a screening colonoscopy by the time they're 45. And that doesn't mean that then you have to start having a colonoscopy every year or anything like that. It just it, it just means that that's when you need to have your initial exam. And then the determination of how frequently or how often you should have colonoscopies after that is based on the findings at the time of that initial colonoscopy. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Aaron Everett, nurse practitioner. On today's episode, I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Joseph Moreno. Dr. Joseph Moreno is a board-certified colorectal surgeon who was raised here actually in East Cobb, Georgia. He graduated from Berry College in 99 and then went on to medical school at Emory University in 2003. He completed his general surgery residency at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Moreno completed his fellowship in colon and rectal surgery at the Cleveland Clinic in Florida. Dr. Marino practices all aspects of colonorectal surgery. However, on today's episode, we're super excited to talk to him about anal fissures, hemorrhoids, anal HPV treatment, prevention and surveillance, and also screening colonoscopies and colorectal cancers. I met Dr. Marino several years ago when I was working with him at the GI lab at Piedmont Hospital. He's a phenomenal person. He cares greatly about his patients, and it's very interesting to see him and talk to him as a provider myself now, but also just to see that he's still continuing to provide excellent care and be a staunch advocate and a wonderful resource for not only his patients, but his colleagues. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Dr. Joseph Marino. So tell us a little bit about yourself or a fun fact that maybe a lot of people don't know about you or something, you know, interesting. Gotcha. Well, you know, I grew up around Atlanta, so this is home. But then uh, spent several years out in the uh, the promised land of Southern California and uh, still somehow made it back here. So, uh, (laughs) you know, I must really like it here. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, we're glad that you decided to come back. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to be back. Good to be back. Excellent. So, you know, just for our listeners, we're going to be talking about a couple of different things today. But I think one of the things that you and I discussed would be most important to touch on first was anal HPV and kind of its diagnosis, its surveillance, and what it even is. Not everybody has condylomas associated with it, but I think that would be a great discussion to start with. 
Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, this is a you know very important topic that affects you know very many of my patients, and uh, and certainly something that I see here in the office uh, really all the time. And and oftentimes you know patients are are reluctant to discuss this kind of problem, and and or or, or are embarrassed to to talk about it. And you know, I try to reassure folks that uh, you know, once again, this is this is something that's actually quite common, and certainly something that mm-hmm. you know I see and take care of uh, all the time, quite frequently. Yeah, and so and it doesn't just afflict men who have sex with men. Obviously, it can occur in all types of different demographics, depending on your sexual practices and your exposures. And with that in mind, that's correct? Yeah, is that some? Is your office administering any vaccines? For that, the Gardasil vaccine? It's a great question. So we don't give the vaccines here. Um, You know, and part of the reason is, you know, most patients tend to get that from their their primary care provider. Correct. Um, And, you know, as the specialists, we we, uh, tend to see folks who, you know, have developed uh, issues or or problems related to Mm -hmm. HPV. So most often that's a kind of kind of a conversation that a patient's had with their PCP. Yeah. Um, but we certainly get asked uh, all the time about the vaccine and whether or not it's appropriate in certain situations and, and who should be getting it. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, we're big advocates for it, for sure. Do you feel like it holds value if the patient's already presented with symptoms? Of HPV, you know that's you know that's a really great question and and really one to which we don't you know know the answer to mm-hmm. uh, definitively yet. I never discourage a patient from getting it because the vaccine is is specifically you know meant to help protect against you know we'll say more risky subtypes of HPV, and, and there, are, there are many different subtypes of the HPV virus, Correct. and some of them are more likely to cause problems than others. So my, my general feeling is that if the vaccine can still protect you against this, one of those subtypes that could be more risky and that you may not have, then it, then it would be a good thing to, to do potentially. Mm-hmm. There's obviously some cost in, associated with with getting the vaccine, and mm-hmm. um, but otherwise very low risk. Yeah. Um, that that being said, however, uh, you know, specifically, guide there is there's no good guideline to say that mm-hmm. it's um, that it's something that you should get mm-hmm. once you've already developed issues related to HPV. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, we often get asked the same question being in primary care, and give a very similar answer. I mean. It's, it's overall the risk is low. It's probably not going to hurt you if, if your insurance covers it right. or you can afford it. You may have some right. benefit to getting that. But yeah, like you said, there's no, yeah, there really is no real gui- good guidelines on that, unfortunately. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I know that from the most recent statement from our society, which is the American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons, does not specifically recommend giving the vaccine once uh, symptoms or or a diagnosis of HPV is, has uh, has been confirmed. But again, I, I, you know, I think I think the answer is we really don't don't know uh, mm-hmm. whether or not someone is going to get some benefit from the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that 
you know, being in mind, you know, as a primary care provider, obviously I'm referring to you when I know a patient has symptoms of HPV, either they've come in with complaints of anal bleeding or other different issues going on, sensitivities, or they've felt something. And so I've done an exam and I send them over to your way. What can a, a patient kind of expect next once they land in your office? Sure. Well, once again, like I said, it's it's a very common thing that we that we see and evaluate all the time, myself and all of my partners here and and we we do our very best to to try to make sure that patients are as comfortable as possible, you know, with with what is certainly an uncomfortable thing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that they have kind of going on and and I try to reassure them that it, this is something that we deal with quite frequently and and while I understand that they're uncomfortable, it's certainly not something that they, they need to be uncomfortable around with us. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, so we do examine that area, obviously, the, the anal area. And, you know, we do have always a chaperone with us uh, when we're doing the exam. And that's really for the, for the comfort, you know, of, of the patient and the provider. Mm-hmm. And what we typically do is, you know, examine sort of the, the, the area directly around the anal opening or the perianal skin. And then try to do uh, both kind of a digital exam of the anal canal and then to even take a look inside the anal canal for any lesions that might be present uh, within the anal canal or in the lowest part of the rectum with a very short scope that goes in the anal opening. And and I, I toss, also try to reassure patients that I'm not going to do anything that's painful or too uncomfortable. So that if something is, then we will figure out a different way to get the information that we need. And But that being said, uh, for the large majority of patients, while the exam is certainly not, maybe a little uncomfortable, it's nothing that's painful or not tolerable. And also, you know, I also always try to, you know, tell patients before I do anything exactly what's going to happen, almost just like I did there, mm-hmm. and uh, so that there's no surprises. And the exam itself uh, lasts, you know, probably less than two minutes in, in the majority of cases, so is usually uh, fairly straightforward. And, and patients do, do tolerate it uh, very well afterwards. Okay. And so you say you've done an exam and you've identified a condyloma on the external skin. How does that differ from treatment for maybe a condyloma on the internal skin, on the internal flesh? Yeah, great question. You know, if, if, a, uh, if we see a condyloma or an anal wart externally, as opposed to being inside the anal canal, then that does open up some of our treatment options. Sometimes if it's a very small lesion that can be easily excised right in the office right at the time of the visit in a in a pretty straightforward and quick uh, office procedure or we may consider uh, alternatives to excision such as using some topical ointment type therapies that are also available so you know we really have a range of of options available to us I do think that particularly if this is a new diagnosis or something that uh, someone has just recently noticed, mm-hmm. um, I do like to obtain some pathologies so that we have a sense of exactly what is going on there. Mm-hmm. And w- that that way we've also confirmed the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so by that, you mean just sending the tissue off to a different type of specialist to make sure there's nothing like precancerous or if all the tissue is benign? That is correct. Yeah. Excellent. Yes, you got it. You got it right. Yeah. 
Okay. And then so from there, what kind of things are you doing to keep an eye on? Should patients come back to you every six months or does that really depend? Like, what are we talking about as far as surveillance? I know there's a lot of literature out there and there's a lot of different opinions, medical opinions, both fact-based and maybe not, but on whether we should be doing lasering. I know there are some providers here still lasering condylomas in their office. There's the option for annual pops. There's high resolution anoscopy. I know there's other techniques. Like what kind of things is your office utilizing and what are your best recommendations? Well, that's a great question. So, you know, I think, and I try to tell folks as well is that, you know, the reason why we want to do something about these lesions or and the reason why we want to figure out whether or not there's any of these precancerous changes going on in these areas is because we know that problems can develop uh, associated with HPV and mm-hmm. even anal cancer is a risk with HPV, which is why we're, you know, doing these procedures and doing this monitoring. So, you know, what I tell folks is, look, we want to do something that's reasonable. And, you know, we don't want to say, you know, well, we'll see you back in in 10 years and hopefully everything's been fine. And we also don't want to, uh, you know, make someone uncomfortable with having to come to the office very frequently and and Mm -hmm. having uh, super frequent exams or anything like that either. So I use a couple of different, you know, kinds of findings to sort of guide my approach. And one is just you know, how how extensive or how, how problematic have the HPV been for that patient? And then also, what degree of, of changes in the cells related to that HPV has been seen by the, by the pathologist if we've taken biopsies in the mm-hmm. past? Are there any precancerous changes going on? And if there are, how significant have those changes been? And I use all of those things to help guide our approach in in monitoring the area. Mm-hmm. And for many, many patients, it's uh, it could even be just a a simple and quick exam, maybe even once a year. And then for others, if if changes are more significant, then perhaps we look more frequently, maybe every six months or so, something like that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned anal pap smears, which I think are are a great kind of adjunct in, in mm-hmm. our ability to monitor that area. And I think in my practice, what I typically do is plan to do an anal pap test or pap smear, at least on an annual basis. And sometimes that's not always true. If we've done recent biopsies, then there may not be, you know, the need to do another pap smear you mm-hmm. know, within a short time frame after that. But I want to make sure that at least on an annual basis, we've got some assessment of that anal area in terms of the cells, not not just my visualization of the area, but in terms of the cells as well. And the, and the anal pap smear is a great way to help us out with that. Awesome. And it's it's not that invasive, correct? That is correct. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, basically a little brush that goes in the anal opening and and kind of twirls around for a few seconds, collecting cells in that area. Mm-hmm. And and that's it. Great. So for patients, it's just something that they can do in a routine follow-up with you. It doesn't need to be in a procedural area. Absolutely. That's awesome. right. Done right in the office and uh, very quick, just really a part of the, the routine exam. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So I do have um, a lot of patients ask me about high-resolution anoscopy. They've either sure. heard about it or one of their friends has had it done. So what are your, what's your stance as far as that? Is it 
better, the same as far as surveillance? Is it just kind of how sure. when some some provider picks their technique that they prefer? Right now, high-resolution anoscopy is definitely another great technique that, you know, we have in, in our ability to kind of monitor these areas and monitor for HPV-related changes. High-resolution anoscopy can also be done in an office setting and not require, a, you know, a trip to the hospital uh, mm-hmm. or a, a special procedural area. And it's a bit more extensive than a typical office exam. And it's a procedure done with, again, a scope that goes into the anal opening and then a special dye is applied to the cells Mm -hmm. in the area. And then essentially kind of a, you have kind of a magnified view uh, of that area through a special scope. And any Cells or areas that appear abnormal are then biopsied right at the time of the procedure, mm-hmm. done again right in the office. So it is also just an yet another tool in our ability to continue to monitor that area for HPV-related changes. And, you know, I think different providers do different techniques. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I again think that... The most important thing to do is to do something, is to do something to keep an eye on that area. And, you know, uh, HRA or high-resolution anoscopy is is Mm -hmm. another tool that also does, again, give us some pathology results so that we have, you know, a better sense of Mm -hmm. what are those cells actually doing under a microscope. So yet another great tool. Uh, I think it's, uh, again, sort of, you know, all of these different kind of methods that I've that I've mentioned all sort of work together to give us a a, a good way to to monitor things. Well, excellent. Well, thank you for that explanation. I think that clears up a lot of murkiness for a lot of listeners because all these terms get flown around. But unless you actually have an established relationship with a colorectal provider, it's hard to sometimes know where to get your good information. Yeah. So now that we've kind of discussed a little bit about anal HPV and the treatment and, of course, their surveillance, I guess we should talk about, too, its risk associated with anal cancer and, you know, other signs and symptoms of that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's and you know, you, you kind of hit the nail right on the head is, is you know, why are we doing anything about HPV in the first right. place? And and that uh, goes back to the risk of anal cancer. And so, you know, one thing I try to reassure my patients with HPV is, is that anal cancer remains a rare GI cancer overall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of cancers that we've talked about, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, people have heard about uh, colon cancer, rectal cancer, and and those colon and rectal cancer are are different than anal cancer. And anal cancer is actually significantly less common than colon and rectal cancer. Mm-hmm. And so that being said, the incidence of anal cancer does seem to be increasing in the U.S. So it is important for us to to keep an eye on and to to monitor for this. So, you know, you asked about kind of some risk factors for anal cancer. And and probably the main risk factor for anal cancer is HPV infection. In fact, 
that kind of makes anal cancer an interesting cancer in that it's related to a virus, which is HPV. Mm-hmm. So despite that, certainly only a very small percentage of, of patients who have HPV in the anal area will, would ever develop anal cancer, which is, which is the good news. Yeah, for um, sure. Yes. So that's why it's so important for us to, to kind of keep an eye on things down there. And, and as far as symptoms of anal cancer specifically, the most common symptom is actually, symptoms rather, are actually mm-hmm. pain and bleeding. Mm-hmm. So certainly those symptoms need to be evaluated um, by, by a specialist to rule out more serious problems. I, I often tell patients, you know, you know, it, it, Bleeding and pain down there are not a hemorrhoid until someone has looked and, and, and told, told you, you that it's not, <laughs> and told you for sure. Because, yeah. you know, I think, you know, obviously there's commercials all over TV for hemorrhoid therapies yeah. and, and, you know, everybody, everybody's heard at least hemorrhoid, mm-hmm. <laughs> the term hemorrhoid, even though you may not know exactly what it is. So, you know, everything that goes on down there is a hemorrhoid to a lot of, uh, a a lot lot of folks, yeah. people. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, those symptoms in particular uh, need to be, you know, thoroughly investigated. And, and particularly when they're persistent, you know, then you really, those symptoms should really be checked out. And, and that's why. Right. Just because they can indicate ac- an actually problem going on that's more serious than hemorrhoids. Right. Well, I mean, but that could be a good segue, too, into talking about hemorrhoids and anal fissures, too. Sure. Because... Yeah, like you mentioned, a lot of people complain about bleeding and anal pain and often assume it's a hemorrhoid. However, it may be something different, but it also might be a hemorrhoid and and anal fissure. And a lot of people don't know the difference between the two. And some of the symptoms are so similar, it's hard for even uh, providers like myself with limited exam tools to be able to decipher. So, of course, they end up in your office. That's right. And, and, And hemorrhoids can also you know, hide out up on the inside of the anal canal as well. So, you know, the, like as you pointed out, it's it's not necessarily an area that can even be easily examined unless you have, you know, a particular instrument to do that. So, you know, to start with kind of hemorrhoids, hemorrhoids basically refer to sort of the blood vessels or the, the blood vessel bearing tissue that lines sort of the anal canal and, and even the skin right at the anal opening. And mm-hmm. at times, uh, for whatever reason, sometimes that tissue can become a little uh, more lax or a little puffy. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, that area is lined really, particularly up on the inside of the anal canal, is lined really with the same kind of lining that, like, lines your, you know, your lower lip, let's mm-hmm. say. I mean, you know, sort of a, sort of a moist mucous membrane, not not tufts like skin. Right. So when that tissue gets a little puffy or a little enlarged, then it can very easily get irritated. So, you know, that can result in bleeding and irritation or swelling in that area. And so that's oftentimes what what folks are are talking about when when talking about internal hemorrhoids anyway. And and then another issue hemorrhoid-related that we see quite frequently is, is an external hemorrhoid that's become swollen um, because of essentially uh, a blood clot that's developed in that hemorrhoid tissue externally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, patients will often describe, uh, you know, uh, kind of a lump that seems to be a little painful down there, almost like a little grape or a little olive. And mm-hmm. oftentimes that's a hemorrhoid issue as well. Yeah. And those are both things that you can address. One probably more so in the office and the other, depending on the severity, you do have to kind of take that to a procedural area, correct? 
Yeah, that can that can be the case. Although I would say even internal hemorrhoids we can deal with most frequently, even in the office. We mm-hmm. have, you know, procedures. The most common procedure that we would do for an internal hemorrhoid is a procedure called uh, hemorrhoid banding or mm-hmm. rubber banding, which uh, some folks have heard of at times is is a very straightforward, simple office procedure that patients tolerate very, very well and can be very effective. So, so we have a lot of treatment options for, for those kinds of issues. Awesome. So the difference, too, between a hemorrhoid and an anal fissure, probably most, of, of course, we know the pathology behind it, but I guess for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind explaining that and then yeah. how the treatment options there might differ. No, of course, yeah. So a fissure is a little bit different. A, a fissure is, is also something that can cause pain and bleeding and, and really more significantly pain, typically. Mm-hmm. But a fissure is, is really like a tear that can develop right at the anal opening or the skin of the anal lining. Mm-hmm. And then you can imagine that would be pretty, pretty painful. Right. And, you know, it's just a really bad place to get a cut or a <laughs> yeah. tear. Right. And uh, you, there's really no way, no way around it. Uh, right. You know, uh, you have to go to the, re- have to go to the bathroom and, and, it, and it can cause pretty significant discomfort. So, you know, a fissure is treated a little bit differently. We have some good medical treatment. There's a particular ointment that we use to get help fissures to heal. Mm-hmm. And then really kind of the most important thing in treating both fissures and hemorrhoids is trying to work to improve the consistency of the stool that's going by that area. That's very important for healing both of those problems. And the most common things that I tell patients to do are to make sure that they're drinking plenty of water and staying well hydrated during the day and then getting a good fiber supplement like a Metamucil or Benafiber to really help that stool consistency to just be as perfect as possible for healing of that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we do, we do, ultimately there is an operation there, like, as you mentioned, uh, you know, procedural areas, there are, there are operations, of course, for, for patients for both fissures and hemorrhoids, which we do quite frequently. They're both outpatient type procedures, but we find that you know a great deal of our patients with with these issues we can we can even manage without without operations but certainly those patients who have more severe conditions of both severe hemorrhoids or a severe fissure can greatly benefit from surgical treatment of that area as well yeah absolutely well, that's really great information. I think that clears it up for a lot of people. And it's nice sometimes just for other people to hear it being so openly talked about so that they feel less uncomfortable coming to you and, and speaking about it. Sure. So I think that alone is super helpful. Hey, everyone. I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started the show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe. Then we can all be happy and continue to listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. One other thing too that I wanted to talk to you about was of course, you know, colon cancer, colorectal cancers. 
this obviously is applicable to everybody listening, not just those part of the LGBTQ community. But, you know, one thing that I've noticed as obviously as a primary care provider is, you know, the guidelines have kind of lowered their screening age to around 45. Right. And of course, you know, anybody, it can happen earlier than that. You know, you have the, uh, you know, what we call the unlikely cases, but you're glad you caught them, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of what's your take on that, on the increasing rates of cancer of people in their 40s? And like, what are your recommendations for screenings as far as colorectal cancers go? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you're right. You know, the incidence of, of colon cancer in younger folks, you know, does seem to be increasing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we really don't know why that is. It doesn't seem to be, though, that we're just doing a better job of diagnosing them. There does actually seem to be an increase. You know, and again, I think that kind of goes back to, you know, what I said earlier Mm -hmm. about people who have symptoms that aren't resolving, aren't getting better quickly, again, like bleeding or Mm -hmm. abdominal pain in the case of colon or rectal cancer, you know, really should be checked out by you know, their doctor, you know, they should, they should come see you and, and, tell, and tell you about these issues so that they can be thoroughly investigated. So, you know, the fact that we're seeing these cancers develop in, in younger, younger patients makes it even more important for us not to just assume that persistent bleeding or abdominal pain is, is related to something, you know, very benign, but, uh, but uh, we have to consider these other possibilities. So, you know, you asked, specifically about screening that's that's correct because of the fact that we mm-hmm. are diagnosing these cancers in younger folks the American Cancer Society recently lowered the recommended age at which we should be starting screening to to 45 mm-hmm. uh, from 50 it was 50 prior to that so what that means is anyone even without any kind of family history of colon or rectal cancer and without any symptoms should have a screening colonoscopy by the time they're 45. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that then you have to start having a colonoscopy every year or anything like that. It just just means that that's when you need to have your initial exam. And then the determination of how frequently or how often you should have colonoscopies after that is based on the findings at the time of that initial colonoscopy. So for most folks, it's it's something that needs to be done every five to ten years, depending on the findings uh, at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what I tell my patients as well, and that's those are certainly the the guidelines that that I follow. Mm-hmm. There are patients who who you know maybe patients who have a, a you know a history of colon or rectal cancer and their mother or father or or sibling, or patients who have had you know, particular medical problems like ulcerative colitis, say, who need to start having colonoscopies even earlier than 45. Mm -hmm. But for the general population, uh, that that is the recommendation. Mm -hmm. And then also to kind of go to circle back Mm -hmm. again to the importance of, of, you know, thoroughly investigating persistent symptoms, you know, we we do colonoscopies, you know, frequently on patients who are even younger than that, who mm-hmm. who we're seeing for for these problems like ongoing uh, rectal bleeding or or other issues. Um, mm-hmm. Just because you're younger than 45 doesn't mean that you can't have a colonoscopy or shouldn't have a colonoscopy. In fact, you know, well, again, we we do colonoscopies on younger patients, mm-hmm. but frequently just to in- investigate symptoms. Yeah. 
So you're talking about more of a diagnostic colonoscopy, but for those without symptoms, everybody should report to a, a surgeon, colorectal surgeon or GI specialist for their screening colonoscopy starting at age 45. That's that's correct. Yeah. and. It. You know, I'm very partial to uh, the colonoscopy, obviously, given my background right. and experience working with people like yourself, right. but also, you know, just with data and the validity of it and how effective it is at reducing colorectal cancers. Absolutely. But of course, you know, for people who are really hesitant, which I will, I'll fight my hardest to convince them into colonoscopy, but, sure. you know, at some point when you have to raise that white flag, uh, Cologuard is an option. Is that okay. something that you're familiar with? Obviously, us as primary care, we order that. But just for clarification and for my patients who might be listening to hear it from someone other than myself about how that tool works and how it might be effective or not, you know, in in diagnosing. Of course. Yeah. You know, so Cologuard is one of these kind of newer options. Uh, For those who don't know, Cologuard is a test. Basically, it's a mail-in kit. You may have seen this advertised on television Essentially, you send a male stool sample back to a lab, and and the, the, the test is specifically looking for particular DNA changes in the stool that can be associated with either a colon polyps or, or colon cancer. So I think that Cologuard may be an option for certain patients. There are, and I'm sure yeah, I know you and in, in, mm-hmm. in your work in primary care, have come across the patient from time to time who is just, you know, adamantly against having a colonoscopy for for whatever reason. And Mm -hmm. it may be a valid reason. And, you know, I think the Cologuard may be an option for that patient if they say, you know, look, I'm I am not going to have a colonoscopy, but mm-hmm. but I am interested in some form of screening. Then Cologuard may be an option. However, my only caveat with that is certainly that, you know, they 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 must understand that if the Cologuard test does show an abnormality, then the next step is a colonoscopy. Is colonoscopy? So, yeah. Right. right exactly. <laughs> right. So. So like, ah, you know, we did again who, colonoscopy. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. So yeah. you know, if someone says, "Well, I'm not having a colonoscopy under any circumstance," then you know they would have to they would have to understand that if their Cologuard result is abnormal, that that a colonoscopy would be the next step. So that is something I try to I try to remind folks. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's a good selling point too, as far as you know. There's a lot of mental anguish that could go on to from a positive Cologuard test to a negative colonoscopy because right. you may still have a negative right. colonoscopy after that. So I absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that brings up another important point about the Cologuard test is that colonoscopy is still a better screening tool, while Cologuard may diagnose a problem, you know, colonoscopy not only diagnoses problems like like even small polyps, which can mm-hmm. easily be dealt with and are not harmful, and it is done right at the same time as the procedure, Cologuard may diagnose those, but it obviously does not do anything about them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, colonoscopy is still, for most people, colonoscopy is still a better screening test. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. And so for patients who don't have any kind of anal concerns or, you know, anorectal complaints or abdominal pain or anything like that, it's still reasonable for them to come and seek out a colorectal surgeon like yourself for a screening colonoscopy. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we uh, we do our share of screening colonoscopies and uh, are always happy to do so. Okay. So you don't have to be having a, an, a medical complaint to be able to see a colorectal surgeon. You can get your screening done with you, which is excellent. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And then, you know, if a patient was to have a polyp that was not able to be removed via colonoscopy or some other issue or unfortunately diagnosed with a colorectal cancer, what is your role in their care after that colonoscopy? Sure, yeah. Um, So for for patients like you mentioned who, let's say, maybe have a larger uh, colon polyp that can't be easily dealt with by colonoscopy alone or who, who may have unfortunately been diagnosed with a colon cancer, then oftentimes the, the next step in treatment uh, is to have surgery to remove that section of the colon that either has that large polyp or, or cancer inside. So, you know, certainly that is, that is something that I do quite frequently and I'm very involved in that, that type of care. And uh, surgery has the chance to be curative for, for those problems. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, that's one of the great parts of the job is to uh, be able to help somebody out like that with a serious issue, even to to, to cure it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's incredible. Yeah, and especially, too, I think for continuity of care, it's also a great option to be able to start the process with the procedures doing the colonoscopy and also finish if you unlikely have to get surgery with the same person who is doing your procedure is really nice. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's that's something that we can offer them. Yeah, absolutely. And so then, you know, we've talked about kind of ways to diagnose and treat, but do you have any expert opinions on colon cancer prevention? That's a really great question as well. So, you know, colon cancer tends to be associated with uh, what we call kind of a Western diet, which is, you know, a diet that's that's lower in fiber, lower in fiber, and higher in fat and and, uh, and proteins. So you know, again, I think one of the most important things that that we can do for a lot of reasons is is you know try to eat a, at least a well balanced diet. Make sure you you get your greens and and you know maybe even taking a fiber supplement might might help as well. I think that's probably the most the most important thing to do. Unfortunately, there's no one thing that we can tell folks uh, that if they avoid, you know, their risk will will be zero. But I think, you know, also we know that, you know, smoking is certainly associated mm-hmm. with an increased risk. Obesity may be as well, that maybe that's a little less certain. But uh, you know, I think we got to we got to, you know, generally Try to eat a, a healthy diet. Get mm-hmm. some get some fiber in your diet. Taking the taking a good fiber supplement every day is probably a good idea. It may help you to avoid some of those other anal complaints as well. Yeah, like hemorrhoids <laughs> and fissures. So you don't have any strong opinions then on like red meat or anything? Because a lot of people ask me about that. And I found the data to be somewhat unclear, but aside from, of course, avoiding sodium nitrates and nitrites. But no, I mean, I I do think that, again, I mean, we, you know, we know that in sort of a Western society where we tend to eat a lot more red meat than, say, Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of the Eastern world, if you will, Mm -hmm. that uh, the rates of colon cancer are higher. So, you know, there probably is some, there probably is some connection with that. 
I, I try to tell folks all the time, though, that probably having a steak for every meal is, is probably not the best thing to do. And yeah. there may be a lot of health reasons for that, so right. colon cancer <laughs> risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but but certainly having a steak now and again is, you know, it, 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 at least in the majority of circumstances, isn't going to dramatically increase your, your risk mm-hmm. uh, individually. So... You know, un- unfortunately, there's no one diet that that we can eat to to eliminate risk. But certainly, I think I think generally living, you know, trying to live a healthy lifestyle, eating a balanced diet, and being uh, active, getting exercise, those are all kind of important things. Avoiding mm-hmm. things like smoking, which which we all, which we know and increases right. all kinds of cancer risk. Right. Those are probably the most important things that, mm-hmm. that you can do. Yeah, and of course, you know, we're preaching about those uh, lifestyle aspects to prevent all kinds of different diseases, including, you know, diabetes right. and heart disease. So, right. you know, even more motivation to do it for your colon health. World. Uh, right, yeah, but it makes sense, right. you know. It does. It makes right. complete sense. Right. You know, especially having a high-fiber diet to keep things moving and out of your system so it can't sit there for too yeah. long. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. That's right. And maybe protective as well. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wish we had more uh, solid answers, but, (laughs) you know, these things. Right. I mean, you know, I don't, I still to this day, I'm like, why? Why do people in their 30s get these horrific colon cancers that aren't genetically linked? I guess, you know, for the most part, we'll never know. Well, yeah. And I call those the lightning strikes. Yeah. I mean, that's. Those are the those are the ones that you're you're walking you know walking outside on a clear day and get yeah. struck by lightning. I mean, there's no no good answer. I mean, I think you know very oftentimes it's it's a single mistake and replication of a cell and one single cell in the colon and and that just becomes propagated and yeah. and you know we those are the ones that we don't have a great answer for often. Yeah, and uh, very difficult to. Uh, to kind of handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Do you have anything else you wanted to chat about or any final comments that, or topics that you wanted to make sure we included? You know, I, I, I think we've covered a, a good broad range of topics here. Uh, you know, I think my messages would be, um, you know, again, is don't ignore symptoms. You know, don't don't assume that something going on is is is, uh, is something like a hemorrhoid until it's actually been checked out by by either your your primary care provider or or a specialist and and uh, remember to get your screening colonoscopies done as needed. That's very important as well, of course. And you know, also remember that that these kinds of issues, while you know, uh, nobody enjoys necessarily talking about them, especially when they're going, when it's something that's going on with, mm-hmm. with you. We, we see these problems and we deal with these problems mm-hmm. literally on a, on a daily basis. Right. And, and, you know, we're more than happy to, to help out with, with these kinds of issues. And, and we want patients to, to feel very comfortable discussing these issues, uh, you know, with us. And we try to work as hard as we can to make people feel that way. And we feel like we do a good job of that uh, here. So, yeah, yeah, I just, uh, you know, want want people to get things checked out, even if they're uncomfortable yeah. in the area and make sure everything is, is doing well. 
Well, I think that's awesome. I think it's so easy for providers like us to forget how uncomfortable it can be because sometimes when I'm talking to patients and I'm asking them all these questions about their stool, they're getting embarrassed and they're like, well, I took a picture. Do you want to see it? I'm like, of course I want to see it. Like, this would be so helpful. And they're like, mind is blown. And, you know, it's like, this is not embarrassing at this point. This is just science and medicine. So, you know, and I can attest to your uh, ability to make patients feel comfortable in your amazing bedside manner to not which you practice, but also others in your group. So you're a valuable resource to Atlanta and my patients and Dr. Smitty's patients. And uh, we're lucky to have you. So I really appreciate you taking the time coming on the show. It's really important to us. Well, you know, th- thank you so much for saying that. That's that's very, very kind of you. And, and congratulations on the on this fabulous podcast. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Know, you. So nice. No, it's so nice to see uh, and provide a lot of great resources for uh, for your patients. And uh, been my pleasure uh, knowing knowing you all. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Remember, everybody, stay fierce and live your truth. <laughs>